When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show beaming thinkers from across the globe direct to your speakers and earphones. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series and the How To Academy's deputy director. This summer, we brought together the legendary feminist Gloria Steinem and BAFTA award-winning actor Tandy Newton to celebrate the seismic impact of Gloria's life and thought. Author and critic Erica Wagner was the host. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this How To Academy event. I am Erica Wagner, and I am honored to be your chair this evening. We're coming to you from London and from Santa Barbara, so it's a truly global event. I will introduce our two wonderful participants, and then we'll start our evening's discussion, and there will be time at the end for you to ask your questions. So please type them into the Q&A, and I will get a chance to see them towards the end of our event. But with no further ado, I will start by introducing Tandy Newton, one of our finest actors here in Britain, and indeed anywhere. She is known for starring roles in films as varied as Jonathan Demme's Beloved to Mission Impossible 2, opposite Tom Cruise. She played Condoleezza Rice in Oliver Stone's W and Val in Solo, a Star Wars story. She also starred in the Academy Award-winning best picture, Crash, for which she received the BAFTA for Best Actress in a Supporting Role and a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture. Her work on the small screen is stellar. Since 2016, she has played Maeve Millay in the brilliant HBO series Westworld, work which won her an Emmy in 2018. In 2017, she played DCI Roz Huntley in the terrific BBC drama series Line of Duty, work which garnered her a 2018 BAFTA TV Award nomination for Best Leading Actress. Born in London, she went to Downing College, Cambridge, and took a degree in social anthropology. You may have heard her wonderful TED Talk, delivered in 2011, Embracing Otherness, Embracing Myself. If you haven't, check it out online. It's already been viewed over three million times. She is an activist and philanthropist and was appointed OBE in the 2019 New Year's Honours for Services to Film and Charity. Additionally, she is a founding board member of the V-Day Foundation and their One Billion Rising campaign a global movement to end violence against women and girls. I'm just delighted to be able to be with her here virtually tonight. And imagine we are linked, not ranked, are the words on Gloria Steinem's homepage, words that seem especially necessary now. Where to begin with the person many have described as the world's most famous feminist? She is a writer, 
lecturer, editor, activist, and organizer. Co-founder with Dorothy Pittman Hughes of Ms. Magazine, which in 1972 broke the patriarchal publishing mold. Born in Toledo, Ohio, she attended Smith College, graduating in 1956, just one year behind Sylvia Plath. She spoke out for women's right to choose long before abortion was legal in the United States. It was she who coined the important term, reproductive freedom, and she continues to speak out to this day on that and many other subjects. She co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, the Ms. Foundation for Women, the Free to Be Foundation, and the Women's Media Center in the United States. She is the author of many international bestsellers, enduringly significant works, which include Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, Revolution from Within, A Book of Self-Esteem, and My Life on the Road, a wonderfully frank account of her life as a traveler. Her most recent book is an illustrated collection of her most inspiring and outrageous quotes, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First, It Will Piss You Off. She has won multiple awards for her writing and her work, including the Penny Missouri Journalism Award, the Front Page and Clarion Awards, and the Lifetime Achievement in Journalism Award from the Society of Professional Journalists. In 2013, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. It is the highest American civilian honor. It is a real honor to speak with Gloria Steinem tonight. I would like to kick off with Tandy, and then we'll go on from there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the most extraordinary things about being able to speak with Gloria is that I know that we can speak about everything and anything. And I I say that partly because everything and anything leads us into a space where we have to talk about women. We have to talk about what we are doing to the female in this world. And I suppose I'll just kick off with, with where we're at. You know, there is so much fear and there's plenty to fear. And it's so ironic because I, I, the human species is, is driven by fear. That little lizard brain of ours is, is overactive. And we're really doing a number on ourselves. The reason I, I, have, I, I have a real sense of it is because I've, I've experienced, because I'm a black woman, one of the horrible benefits is the intersectionality of, of my experience in terms of receiving negative, negative stimuli from people. And it's all fear-based. And, you know, when I think about the fear of women, uh, men's fear of women, it's a misunderstanding, you know? It, it's not, because feminism isn't women hating men, it's women asking men to stop hating women. And actually, it's women asking men to stop fearing women. I read anthropology, and I think that you are an anthropologist, Gloria. And I wonder whether all those thousands of years ago, as human beings started to migrate and separate in these small clans, of course, the key resource, their power, in terms of their carrying on living was women. So another group wanting to have ownership of that land or, 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 or whatever that first initial group had would be to destroy the women because that's how you destroy a whole population. Women are the reason why we can be hurt. We can be 
you know, the power can be taken away from us. And it's this, I feel like there's this, been this confusion around how important the female is. And there is plenty to fear about our females being destroyed. But we've misunderstood. And it's almost like this suicidal tendency is now, if we just destroy all the women, then we'll have nothing to fear. And I know that's a fantasy, Gloria. It's kind of a perverse fantasy, which is the kind of thing I think about, by the way. <laughs> you know, I spend my time thinking about these things. But what do you think about that in terms of just, I just want to get underneath why. I, I believe I'm a feminist, I'm a humanist, and I, I appreciate a lot of men. I mean, I couldn't categorize all men, all women, all black people, all white people. It's just nonsense. It's, mm-hmm. And you talk about this a lot, about individuals and how we don't, allow ourselves to be preoccupied by that because we can't because everything has to be put into boxes but that's just because we are a sedentary society and i i just think we've lost our migration we've lost our our ability to move and, and, and move where we need to go of course but this initial fear this ancient fear that is bound up around women because woman is life of course literally the vessel of life just, just a small, casual first question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, uh, of course, my mind was racing as you were speaking. Oh. Um, and, of course, you're entirely right that violence against women is the primary cause or incidence of violence in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is also the indicator of all other violence. Mm-hmm. That is, violence in the family against women and in the street and so on against women is the biggest indicator of whether a country will go to war against another country. It's not access to natural resources, to food, to water, to a, it's because it normalizes violence in the family and then, or in the street, and then people think that it's the only form of human behavior. But actually, it has not always been the case. There were pre-patriarchal societies. There are still pretty non-patriarchal societies in a few places where women are not the subject of violence, are not controlled. And I think, you know, what we have that men don't have is a womb. Mm -hmm. So it's really all about controlling reproduction. Mm -hmm. And if there is racism or any other form of caste or any other form of discrimination, it kind of redoubles the control of women because you can't maintain that kind of artificial separation. You know, we're all human beings. We fall in love with each other. You know, it makes no sense how much melanin we in our skin. You know, who cares, right? So in order to perpetuate racism and caste and class, you have to doubly control women. You know, the first step in a true democracy is freedom for women, because that's the first step in authoritarianism and violence and so on. And if we can just get our head around the fact that it's not inevitable, there have been, you know, probably most of human history didn't have patriarchy, but we don't learn about it. And I think that's kind of conscious that we don't learn about it. Uh I mean, I don't. My, my education in my country here in North America did not begin with the people who were here in the first place, <laughs> with Native Americans, mm-hmm. who, who ha- had often matrilineal 
cultures and you know we to this day we don't learn about them and, and it makes perfect sense because in, in order to control a population of course it, through information and, and lack of information but the fact that you're talking about it the fact that let's i mean of course we should be going further back into history i mean mm-hmm. it, it, it's you know, this last phase of protests with, with Black Lives Matter in the States, of course, had a global impact. And I found that the way to calm myself was to search for my Black British pride. And it wasn't easy, mm. simply because it hasn't been documented. I had to search. I had to search for those voices, for those stories, for those people. And I did, and it was extraordinary. In my isolated lockdown house, I found this whole world of, of black British pride. And I, it, it's not just for me. It would be wonderful for all British people, regardless of, of ethnicity, to feel proud of being mm-hmm. a country that can include other ethnicities. I mean, I suppose in many ways, as, as populations age, they require different things. And I think it's possible to be hopeful that a new generation is going to want to learn about the true history of America going further back and are going to want to include Mm -hmm. in Britain. Yes, I think so. And I think that this current terrible suffering we are going through, which reveals all the inequality and... Dinosaurs are groaning. But it's changing. There's one way, I think, in which it could change our consciousness for the better in the way that you are describing because COVID does not care mm-hmm. how much melanin there is in our skin, does not care what gender we are, does not observe national boundaries. It sees us as human beings. And just perhaps that is beginning out of tragedy to change our consciousness. It sees us, the fascinating thing to me is that it sees us as human beings, therefore exposing ruthlessly in both of our countries, I should say I'm a dual national, I grew up in the United States, but I've lived in Britain for a long time, exposing ruthlessly the systemic inequality Mm -hmm. across society, so that black and brown populations are much more badly affected. Oh, absolutely. But I think... I mean, for instance, I doubt that we are going to have the resistance that we have had in the past to universal health care, which is resistance which is peculiarly American, because now people understand that one person's health is connected to the next person's health. So I think if we can hang on to this consciousness that gender and, and ethnicity and race and national boundaries are things we made up, and we can unmake them up. We are learning that because they are being unmade by COVID as we speak. Tandy, you raised the subject, um, which is something I would ask you both about, of intersectionality. And I think it's a term, I think you, you, know, you both know Kimberly Crenshaw, who I believe yeah, I know her very well, the term. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth, maybe um, I'd like to ask one of you for those, our listeners, who perhaps don't know what it is. To explain it, you talk about it, Gloria, in your, in your new book. Perhaps give us a, just a quick definition. Well, it, it, there, there has always been, I mean, it used to be called Double Jeopardy, but that was really only sex and race. And so Kim gave us a great service with the term intersectionality. 
because that it can include multiple forces, class and many other forces coming together. And ironically, it was made necessary in part because people did not, because our history is so crazy that there was not a recognition that in my country, black women were way more likely to be feminists in the first place than white women. Mm-hmm. Hugely more likely. They termed the sexual harassment. Yes, no, but I'm talking about the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, the very first, I think in 1972 was the first public opinion poll on the women's liberation movement, as it was then called. And there was, you know, some, you know, twice as many black women were supportive of it as white women. It was only 30 some percent of white women. It was over 60% of black women. So it has always been the case that statistically speaking, black women have been more likely to be feminists than white women. But the coverage of the women's movement, I mean, the media kind of looked at the women's movement as white and the civil rights movement as black, and black women were left out of both, actually. So, uh, I mean, now I'm, I'm working on a book with two friends of mine. We're trying to rectify the, We're trying to go back and point out the sort of missing figures of black feminist leadership in yeah, the Yeah, and I think that unfortunately that has been internalized by uh, generations of black women. I remember the, the Women's March uh, a couple of years ago here in London, and I was really saddened by how few people of color were there, women of color. And I spoke to, um, I spoke to a couple of, of women about it, black women, and they just said, there's no, there's no space for us. There's no place mm-hmm. for us here. And I but do I, think that that's the failure of, as just with it, you know, what, what Erica was saying about intersectionality. It's because it's, we're not, it's that the perspective hasn't the been the media actually, because if the media, media gets in their heads, under, yeah. you know, I'm not blaming individuals, but just in a general cultural way, the idea that the women's movement is white and, you know, racial movements are men. And yeah. there's, there's a, a wonderful book, which you may have seen, all the men were black, all the women were white, but some of us were brave, you know. So right oh, right. oh, that's great. What a great title. Yeah. But uh, I, I found even in, you know, when I've written about you before, Gloria, and it's why I felt I was careful because... Ms. Magazine, of course, was co-founded with Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who was a woman of color, mm-hmm. whose love- name, it seems to me, is often left out. And, that's, mm-hmm. and that, of course, is media, of course. Well, and I, and I spent my, my first, uh, I mean, I, I would like to say that I did not do this because I was smart. I did this because I was afraid of public speaking. <laughs> I asked Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who was my friend and fearless, if she would come with me. <laughs> and in that way, I discovered how important it was for a white and black woman to come together because we got audiences that neither one of us would have attracted on our own. And when Dorothy then had a baby and wanted to stay home with her baby, Florence Kennedy, I hope you know the outrageous, wonderful Florence Kennedy, who spoke together and then Margaret Sloan. So for, you know, like 30, 40 years, I was always speaking as a pair with one of those great women. And when the newspapers reported on us as we arrived in some town, wherever, you know, the reporters would ask me about the women's movement and Dorothy or Flo or Margaret about the civil rights movement. 
and we would let it happen for a little while and then say, wait a minute, we are both here representing the world. But it never failed to happen. And, and it, it's that imagery that's the problem. So I'm hoping that pointing out the accurate version of the past will help. Uh, with my two friends that I'm, <laughs> you know, but, but we just have to not accept the image as reality. Absolutely. And, right. and it's happening organically anyway, because it can't not happen. Yes, but, it's, but, it, but it shouldn't be made to seem new. It's always been true mm. that statistically speaking, I mean, look at who voted in my country. Look at who voted for yeah. Hillary Clinton. The, the vast majority of black women and the minority of white women voted for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, it's true in every instance. There's a bit of sabotage there, isn't there? I was interested in getting your opinion about, I've been watch, I was watching the trailer of a new film about Fred Hampton's death, Black Panthers, looks mm. terrific. But in watching this new trailer, one of the things that's so important about looking back at the Panthers is how it was infiltrated and brought down by COINTELPRO, by the government. Mm because it was such a powerful movement and because it was getting a lot of attention. And then I found myself thinking, my goodness, how much has the government tried to bring down feminism? It must have done. It must have done. And yet it's still thriving and powerful. Do you have any, any response to that? Is it something that you were Once, it, once it, at, at Ms. Magazine, we, you know, there is a program by which you can get old government files, you know, so we got old... Uh, government FBI files and so on. We were trying to figure out whether the, the government had been surveilling the, the women's movement. And what we discovered was they were mainly concerned with the girlfriends of the guys they took seriously in the other movements. <laughs> I, I mean, they, it, it didn't seem that they took the women's movement seriously enough except by our oh, association to thrive and continue that's but that was you know the we were you know looking at the 60s 70s you know Mm-mm-mm-mm. i don't i don't know but i don't care with who's surveilling i'm going to do what i'm going to do and that's you're going to do what you're going to do fuck the surveillers you know yeah what are they seeing people yes. talking and, and, and trying to make things better um without guns you think that we should not overlook the fact that we do have <laughs> the one thing that men don't, which is a womb, and the desire to control reproduction, which is the first step in pretty much every hierarchy. Yeah. And it's redoubled by racism or, you know, all, for nationalism, all other kinds yeah. of reasons. So, you know, those, those of us who are saying, oh, I can't believe we're fighting this same abortion fight over again, well, to realize that that is very fundamental. Yeah, and I, I was—I wanted to ask you whether what your perception was, Gloria, on what seems to me—you know—it seems to me certainly in the United States we're going backwards in that direction. I think some—you know—perhaps people of my generation had the luxury of thinking that was a battle that was won. Does not seem to be the case. I wonder what you think about that. No, well, I think that we are crazy if we don't recognize it is the fundamental battle. Because we do have, you know, that is the reason for patriarchy in the first place, to control reproduction, to decide which races, which castes, which, you know, increase and, and, and which don't. 
So the very fact that we're saying, I can't believe we're fighting this same shit over again means that we don't understand that. But they are not winning here. You know, I mean, uh, in, in, despite efforts in Texas and other benighted <laughs> places to close clinics, I mean, before abortion was legal, one in four women had had an abortion at some time in their lives. Now it's one in three. The problem, of course, is the danger to which one is exposed in seeking an abortion. But again, in, in pre-patriarchal cultures, women totally knew how to control their own fertility and decide when and whether. To, in the middle of the Kal- Kalahari Desert, women you know, took me out and showed me the plants that they use as, as contraceptives and abortifacients. You know, we, there's, we're supposed to be grateful to science for the pill, and we are grateful. It was developed by two women. But uh, it's always been true. Just in nature, in normal circumstances, you want to control your own bodies. Men do and women do. Yeah, it is. It's the, it's the, it really is the cornerstone, isn't it? Um, and in what, it's a sad, a sad fact that, that, that human beings feel so comfortable with survival, that they can play with birth in that way, that things are too easy for us. And it's just, I don't know, we were talking earlier about the importance of of, of, of being part of your survival, being part of the food that you take in to be able to nourish yourself. And that, that what happens if you're left with this brain and, 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 and little else to, to really distract you and what you end up doing and, and, and how crazed people become about power and the control of power. But of course that happens if you're but it's, not it's, it's not just people, it's patriarchy, it's racism, it's nationalism. It, it's not the three of us, <laughs> you know. I but all of those things, all of those things are controlled by people and are devised by people. And it takes people to... to I know, but, but people also created other things. So I don't think it's human. I think it's political systems called patriarchy, called racism, called, you know. Uh, so I, calling it people... Gives them too much, if you know what I mean. That's interesting, Gloria. Yeah. So, so we're actually sort of going along blinkered, and not even people aren't even aware of the systems dominating them. Because I'm aware of them. You're aware of them. I see it playing out all the time, and that's obviously what gives me cause to to, to protest and be an activist. But the idea that people who, but especially people in 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 positions of power, don't even know about the systems that are controlling their behaviour. Well, well, look, we have, I would, first of all, I would like to apologize for the guy that we have put in power, Trump. So I apologize too. I second that apology. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. uh, lost the popular vote by three million. Yes, He's only there because of something called the Electoral College, which is a leftover. Uh, the, it was wanted by three slave states who wanted to be oh, able to. Yeah. Right. So. You know, I'm so sorry that we've inflicted this guy on the world, but he does not represent more than about a third of the country. He's doing enormous damage, but we can't pretend or and shouldn't say that he's supported, you know, by the majority of this country. He is not. And th- that, I think, gives us the courage to disobey. 
I've never called him president. Mm -hmm. I never intend to. Mm -hmm. He didn't get the majority vote. He's not democratically elected. Which, and, which is a very vulnerable place to be in. So that is going to make you behave very badly if you're in that vulnerable place. We we're talking about fear earlier. And, you know, where there's greatest progress, there's greatest resistance. And that's what I think when I look around the world. I think, oh, progress is really, really winning because the resistance is acute. Well, that's, no, I think you've put your finger on something very important because when, I, I fear that when we have a victory, as in a sense we did with eight years of Obama, we forget that the most dangerous time is after a victory. Yes. That's when there's backlash. Usually we, we tend to relax, you know, instead of saying, no, this is the time of maximum danger. And we are now getting a backlash from a third of the country, more or less, that is still very into old hierarchies of race and, you know, all kinds of, you know, prejudgments about, about human beings and feels robbed of their, their old uh, position. But so, you know, if we can just get a grip on the fact that the most dangerous time is after a victory, it will help us. And also that we are winning in terms of the majority. Now, I mean, in this, in this country now, there is a kind of, uh, there has been an effort to tell young people their vote doesn't matter. You know, that's part of the way they're kept away from the polls, in spite of the fact that if you don't vote, you don't exist. That's it. You know, it's, it's the only place. The voting booth may be one of the few places on earth where everybody is equal. Yes. And we certainly saw that here in Britain, I think, with the Brexit. Mm -hmm. Which, well, yes. remaining in Europe, is supported overwhelmingly by the younger generation, mm -hmm. Brexit, who Brexit will affect, mm. and yet they didn't turn out to the polls. What was your experience of why not? I think what you're describing, that they, they feel somehow disenfranchised. I think that's been a long time, too. I think that not voting has now become habitual. You just don't do it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they don't feel they can relate to uh, people in power. And it's without the knowledge that <laughs> the people in power truly have all the power. I think mm -hmm. that young people think they don't have it the power because they're not respected by the young people. Well, also, we can elect young people. I mean, we've begun to do that a little bit in Congress here, and we should do it a lot more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. the admiration for leaders like Jacinda Arnhem in New Zealand. Yes. yes. Who doing such a remarkable job and is a, a young woman by my lights anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Tandy, I wanted to ask you, I think you mentioned at the beginning, um, rethinking black British history. And that's been, a, it seems to me, rightly, a much louder conversation. You have people like the historian David Olasuga at the forefront of this discussion. I wonder if you've perceived a shift recently in towards more inclusion, or if you feel that there's still a long way to go. Oh, I think there's a long, long way to go. And that's not, um, that's not to be pessimistic. I think, I, I think this kind of change takes an, a really a very, very long time, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't still be trying to, to push that forward. I think it's partly to do with, with migration in and out, seeing England. I know certainly from my point of view, when I felt that England wasn't uh, giving me what I needed, I just left. 
you know, and I didn't, I don't mean physically leaving. I've, it, it's always been my home, but I left in my mind, you know, I studied anthropology. I am also, my, my family is from Zimbabwe also. So I was able to sort of plant my head out there. Like that's really my home. But then of course, when I went to Zimbabwe as a young person, they all said I was white. So then I was left with this, like, okay, that's tricky. Um, <laughs> um, but I did, I was aware that, you know, pride in your home needs to be engendered and we need to do it. And I know, I certainly feel it's my duty as a British person to create the Britain that I want to live in. And I, I didn't do that. I neglected that. But that's just because I didn't feel like I had that, that power. You know, I think it's really, we've got to put power back into, in, in, into people and not run away, but to stand and face it. I mean, it was interestingly in Gloria's book, it really, really moved me, Gloria. You were writing about women feeling they're not feminist enough, or I can't remember, I'm sorry to say, I can't remember exactly what, what it was about, but you said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that hit me so hard. I think people feel that they're failing, that, mm. they're, that they have to run away, you know? And I think that if, the, the kindness of, of, of how you encourage people to, to, to protest and, and, you know, is also is, is to outline the fact that you are a product of the, the world that you're in, you know, this world dominated by patriarchy and the establishment and so on. And to start from a place of loving yourself and accepting that you're only as good as what's around you and then changing it to be mm. what you need it to be. So honestly, Erica, that's the spirit of how I'm going into this. And I'm going to, and I, it is my duty. And I, and I felt it. I was an example of, uh, the perfect example of a transformation as I was online reading and finding it quite hard sometimes to find those people because they're not documented, you know? And, and then realizing that I could do that. And I've got some irons on the fire of how that, of how that I can do that. But I, I, it's incredibly important that we put a sense of power into the individual, into the young. What you were saying about not going out to vote because ugh, it doesn't matter. A pride mm. in your community, a pride in your culture, you know, mm. without it being nationalistic. It's a tricky one. It's really tricky. Well, but you just, we just have to use whatever power we have. We have vote power. Okay, use it. We have money power, what we buy. And oh, yes, and what we don't buy. What we don't buy. Uh, so we have those kinds of power. And, and, and if we, I think we suffer from a case of the shoulds. What should I do? Yes. As opposed to just doing everything we can. Mm-hmm. Getting up in the morning and saying, okay, what opportunities for talking to the postman, talking to, you know, the grocer, talking to, uh, uh, making sure we have companionship because we're communal animals, we can't function alone. So we need to have a, a group of three or four or six or 12 or you know, people who, however different we may be, share hopes in, and support each other. We need that. And then nothing can stop us. And to recognize that everything matters. Everything matters. I think we're so used to this idea that you can just throw it away disposable, disposable, even, even interactions, people, turn it off. But everything matters. Every mm-hmm. moment is an opportunity. And I think it's, it's about connecting truly with life. Even though we're separated from each other and all the tragedies that we know, it's also interesting <laughs> that we have time now to demonstrate. I mean, mm-hmm. people are in the streets <laughs> in part 
because we have time to be in the streets. You know, we're not right. And we're looking and we've certainly all the injustice is revealed by the unequal impact of, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I feel good about the demonstrations that are in the streets of this country. Oh, yeah. I want to make sure, I'm just interjecting because I want to make sure that we have time for questions from our, oh, yeah. our audience. Um, so I have some of them up here and I'll start throwing them up. For Gloria, this is from uh, Susan Young. In terms of the quality of women's lives, what have we gained, lost, and not been able to change from the publication from the early days of the second wave feminist movement? We've gained more control over our own physical selves, which certainly is fundamental because we've gained more ability to decide when and whether to give birth. We have not gained nearly as much as we should in terms of safety because still being a female human being is a risk factor and we are still subject to sexual assault. Indeed, the only men I've ever discovered who understand women's feeling of vulnerability are the men in prison who, in the absence of women, are used as women and say, I get it now. I understand what you've been living with. Uh, We have moved towards equal pay, but we're still subsidizing in my country by $400 billion a year by pay that is still unequal. So we, you know, we've, we've moved a, a distance. We have occasional backlashes, but we are no longer viewed as crazy or man-hating or, you know, peculiar. It is now a huge, huge majority movement. Um, and I, I must say, I feel the, the choice of our vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, is some evidence of that. I mean, and mm-hmm. Shirley Chisholm, you know, in the 70s was the only person who took, who personally took the white male only sign off the White House door. Mm-hmm. And that was only symbolic. So, you know, we, we are making progress, but we have to prepare to, one, continue, and two, understand that after a victory, there is a backlash. And that, that leads me to, there's another, another question uh, from Linda Moore. Uh, can Gloria comment on the forthcoming U.S. election, and what does she think are the key feminist issues in the debate? You know, we have in the White House someone who is unspeakably unintelligent, uh, <laughs> uh, a terrible, even as a businessman, he's terrible. He's, I mean, we have to get rid of the virus in the White House. That is the big Nothing is more important than getting rid of the virus in the White House. And we have a good ticket in, in Biden and, and Kamala Harris. I'm going to work my heart out for that, for that ticket. Uh, we have to safeguard the vote and our post office boxes, which uh, Trump is trying to eliminate so we are unable to vote. That's our current battle. Isabella Chauzy asks, if we believe that the key issue for feminism today is control of reproduction, as you say, how do we support transgender women in the movement who may not physically have a womb? And she also thanks you for the great talk. We can identify, we can say who we are, right? 
therefore it is i mean we are we are protecting protecting men's rights we are protecting gen, transgender rights we are protecting the right to have power over our own bodies and our own self identification absolutely universal right absolutely if a woman has the right to have control over her body that the knock on effect is control over your body mm-hmm. and everyone else i everyone mean it's, else, that's what i mean everyone uh, Sabine Buckley wants to know, do you both feel uh, that feminism is in a worse state now than it was in the 1970s? And if so, what has contributed? Oh, absolutely not. I just want to say that one of the benefits of being old, <laughs> which <laughs> older. Is older, is that you remember when it was worse. Okay. I can't imagine, Gloria. <laughs> Literally, it makes my head spin. The idea... <laughs> I mean, we really, we, we really definitely have it better. Right. No, it, better. It, it, it was a novelty at the time, you know, uh, and we were regarded as man-hating and crazy, and I don't know, I can't even remember all the epithets. No, it's way better now. It's a majority movement when it was just an outlying one in the 70s. Yeah, and now it's... It's it's about the specifics, right? Whereas before it was, it, it, it's almost like having to justify woman as being valuable, mm-hmm. as being intelligent. I mean, just basic, basic human rights, mm-hmm. actually. No, it was so, I mean, when I uh, wrote some feminist article and I, a, a, a an editor who was my friend who had, I'd known for years, who was a colleague, called up a friend of mine and said, I didn't know Gloria was a lesbian <laughs> because he couldn't imagine that I would be a feminist and have any uh, sexual relationships or relation. I don't, I don't know what he was thinking, but I mean, that's, that's kind of where we started. I would like to give a, a little plug Uh, for Gloria's wonderful new book uh, that I mentioned, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First It Will Piss You Off, which is a compendium. It's a really delightful book, and it's a compendium of quotes, very many of them by Gloria, but she's also chosen uh, quotes from her friends and supporters over the years. And it's a a wonderful themed variety of quotations. Um, One of them that really struck me that I've thought a lot about is you say, imagine your future self walking on the path ahead of you. Let her lead you. And I wonder what you would say, Gloria, to your younger self today. Oh, I would just say it's going to be all right. (laughs) But the the future self idea is interesting because uh, as an exercise, I think we imagine our hopes, if you know what I mean. And, and so our guidance is inside of us if we can just think about that, that future self guiding us. But I, I have to say I love quotes. The reason I did that book is I love words that are short enough to put on a banner, to yeah. put on a T-shirt, yeah. to remember, to use as uh, – that are funny, that are, you, you know, <laughs> they're the poetry of everyday life. They're very important. They're mantras. You know, it's almost like you can get into a meditative state. And it, it, it allows you, because they're short, it allows you to really focus on that one 
idea mm. and be empowered by that idea, be filled up. Here's a, we have one, I think this is an interesting question. Um, uh, Gloria, would you have appreciated social media sites such as Instagram or Twitter in the 70s? Is it an appropriate platform or are they appropriate platforms for meaningful debate and spreading awareness? Well, I, I do appreciate, first of all, all the technological forms of communication are helpful for women if we can afford them, which is a big question economically, <laughs> because you can communicate at home and safety, you can get information, you can find colleagues, you can find support. I think it's especially helpful for women. However, I would like to say that what worries me is sometimes I think we forget that you have to be physically together in order to empathize with each other. In order to produce the famous oxytocin, which is the hormone that allows us to not just to learn, but to know what someone else is feeling. I mean, when we're, if we hold a baby, male or female, we're flooded with oxytocin. If we see someone who has had an accident, we have an impulse to help them even if we don't know them because we're flooded with oxytocin. So it worries me that, I mean, as wonderful as technology is, we have to remember that we still need to be together with, with all five senses in order to actually know what someone else is feeling. Well, and that's, you know, right now, because one of the things you say in the book, one of the quotes, is that pressing send is not enough yes, to this right. technology. However, here we are in the middle of a global mm -hmm. pandemic when it's very difficult to be with other people. What are your thoughts on how we access that empathy, that oxytocin, when it isn't safe for us to be with other people? No, I mean, we're, we have, you know, I, I can see you now in a way that I could not, you know, I can see you both and I'm very grateful for that. And I, I feel connected to you and I hope we, we stay connected. And I hope and I believe that all three of us have some personal safe people uh, with whom our oxytocin level, <laughs> you know, re remains high. We need that too. And the absence, Erica, the flip side is the not being able to, to be with people and, you know, being on the computer nonstop but still feeling this, this lack I think is going to, is, is teaching us all, even people who find themselves on the devices too much, that it's mm. not enough. It simply isn't, you know, months and months and months of being separated from each other. Um, so with all hope, it will actually encourage, as Gloria is saying, regardless of it being a great idea to, we, we want to. Yeah, we, we, we realize how precious it is now. This and, is helping. And how much more impactful and nourishing it is than being on our our devices, of course. Mm. Um, there are cases, as we know, I think uh, the last one I read about is in Japan, where young boys who are totally obsessed with being online actually physically perish from that obsession. I mean... From not being with other people. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Katie Minish asks... Uh, and we're coming to the end of our event, I, I will say. Um, but we have time, I think, for a couple more questions. 
what are some ways that we as a society can more effectively empower girls as a mean to shift cultural imbalance? Well, first of all, I mean, every way. We, we cannot put them in restrictive clothes with little bows and buttons. I mean, would mm-hmm. we put boys in clothes that they can't dress themselves in with buttons mm-hmm. in the back? No. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so. Uh, it's never too early to start. We were literally, before we, we were talking about children's books, and I did want to mention, you know, the number, every book that I read to my children, I have altered in some way because I didn't, feel that it was nourishing them in a way which was going to allow them to be the fullness of themselves. And I have a 19-year-old daughter who has been something of an experiment, I've got to say, because when she was born, I just had a, a very powerful sense that I just didn't want to make her gender the first stop on, on how she identified with mm-hmm. herself. And I, if people said, oh, she's such a sweet little boy, I wouldn't challenge them. I, I, I used neutral colors that I happen to love. Uh, as opposed to exclusively pink, and so on. I, la- I wanted her, if she, if she uh, identified more with in a story, I didn't make her feel ashamed about that. Mm-hmm. If she wanted to wear, which she did, her Batman costume for a year, I thought that was terrific. She liked the colors. I didn't even say, that's a boy. I, it, and the result, I've got to say, are extraordinary. And I, she is a person first, and that is a gift. It's a gift. But that's, um, that's huge. I mean, you, you have huge. In, in being in raising children, you have done such I mean, I, I have not done that. You have done that. And I salute you. It's turned, <laughs> up, it's turned out pretty great, Gloria, I've got to say, because she sees, she, she sees injustice and calls it out because for her, for her it's, it's an anomaly. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense that you would restrict a person based on the fact that they have what genital, you know, what you just, that's not it. It's about, it's about communicating and it's about the individual and, and everything that that brings. Um, so right from the beginning, be empowered to, and don't be afraid of it. That's the other thing. I feel like there's so much fear when mm. someone questions the identity of their child. It's almost like if they don't remind them that they're a girl, that they might forget, or if they don't mm-hmm. remind them constantly, reminding them of your boyness and your strength and your power, that, that like, what do you think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. And how much more powerful is it to find whatever your strengths are and then to connect with them? Just wait with your children. Wait to discover who they are and then, yes. and then empower that. And remember that we know... We know we have something to say because someone listens to us. So asking children questions, what do you think, what do you do, you know. I mean. And that's, that's when, you're absolutely right, that's when children feel empowered is mm-hmm. when they feel whatever, boys or girls, whatever they are, that's how they feel they can be people. Mm-hmm. Yes. I always remember, I have a son. My son is 20. And when he was about five, he had a, a carer, a lovely woman who was helping us. I have a tattoo on my shoulder. And Sophie had quite a lot of tattoos. And this is what he had seen. And at some point he asked me, he said, Mom, I said, yes. He said, are men allowed to have tattoos? So that was, you know, his experience. I think we, in Western society, we think that's perhaps a male thing historically. Mm. That's not what he'd Scene. So that was a very interesting lesson in 
what you show. That's why it's important to see men as well as women, as doctors or as lawyers or whatever, or as parents. I mean, you know, the pattern of democracy is in the home. And if children see men caring for children as much as women, they will grow up knowing that that is, and, and also that allows men who are every bit as nurturing as women, it's a libel on men to say they're not, <laughs> to, you know, to develop their nurturing powers. It's just, you know, if, if, if we stop look, thinking so much about up there and thinking about just the daily, daily, daily uh, experiences we're having, as you, as you point out, then, you know, it's, 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 it's not so difficult. It's just common sense. And that each of us is a unique miracle that could never have happened before and could never happen again. And finding out who is in that child by listening is a kind of magical experience. Here's a question um, for Gloria. Which avenue has made the most difference? Activism on the street or lobbying in the halls of power? And what would you recommend for those of us who want to affect broad systemic change today? Well, I would like to say to that questioner that I trust her judgment. <laughs> uh, if I had to choose between the street and lobbying, I would choose the street because the people in our legislatures of various forms know what's going on in the street. Uh, and, you know, so that probably has the more universal power, but I would choose the form that's more, most appropriate to the issue and that you feel most comfortable doing. And be sure you talk to each other, the people who are talking to the legislators and the ones who are in the street. Can Gloria explain, asks this questioner, why if we're fighting to get out of the boxes and labels, is it important to label the first black woman, for instance, to become vice president or to stand for vice president in the news? If we as a world community would see everyone as equal, this announcement would not be news, would it? Would, is that the achievement we're fighting for? Uh, yes, it is, because it's, you know, unfortunately in my country, you can go snow blind from looking at leaders, you know, so you have to... <laughs> you have to point out the importance of leaders looking like the whole country because it's not actually democratic unless we look like the whole country. So if we've only got white guys up there, which is what we've had before Obama, you know, it, it, it's clearly not a democracy. Therefore it is a celebration when we begin to look more like the country. And I think finally, and this is because this is surely the most important issue of the day. Any ideas on women and climate change action, women's role in climate change? action? It's difficult in a sense because we are not the majority of the people making the big climate destroying decisions. However, we have consumer power, which is very important, what we buy and don't buy. Uh, we have power over our behavior and what we support in our communities. We can demonstrate against mining, against, uh, you know, extending gas lines, except, you know, which, which certainly in this country is a big source of occupation. So I would just say by any means necessary, you know, look, see, and also 
especially by by what we what we buy and publicizing what we buy we we have made some substantial changes in just that way just consumer power i think by any means necessary is a very good quote <laughs> to end on i want to thank you both so warmly for participating in this event it has really been a joy to speak to both of you and feel that sense of community, even virtually. So thank you so much, Tandy. Thank you so much, Gloria. And I hope we meet again. And thank and you to everyone out there. Who thank you to everyone out there. And thank you for wonderful questions. And we'll see you at the next How To Academy. Absolutely. Power on, people. <laughs> this podcast starred Gloria Steinem and Tandy Newton. It was presented by Erica Wagner and edited by John Doughty. Gloria's new book, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First It Will Piss You Off, Thoughts on Life, Love and Rebellion, is out wherever good books are sold. If you enjoyed this week's show, we have plenty more just like it for you. Keep up with the latest news from How To Academy and be the first to hear about our nightly programme of live streams by visiting us at howtoacademy.com and signing up for our newsletter. It's all killer, no filler, I promise. You can also follow us on all your favourite social media and by subscribing to this podcast series. Until next week, I've been Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 